Our passage this morning comes from Job chapter 4, verses 12 through 21. Uh, This is uh, still in the first speech of Eliphaz. Uh, I will read the entirety of chapter 4, just so that we understand the context in which uh, our passage this morning is brought forward by Eliphaz. Uh, But the sermon will focus uh, exclusively on verses 12 through 21. Uh, Before I uh, read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning in the name of Christ. We come now to hear your words to us. We ask, dear Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit as you gave the author of this book, And as you purposed your church to be infallibly taught concerning your glory and concerning our duty, we ask, Father, that you would give us your spirit that we might learn the lesson you would have us to. That we might be uh, matured and grown to perfection in Jesus Christ. Uh, That we might repent of our sin that we might cling more fully in trust and faith to Him, and that we might serve Your will with gratitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word from Job chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upheld him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished be an innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils they are consumed. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lion are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. Now a thing was secretly brought unto me, and my ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of the nights, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before my eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no confidence in his servants, his angels he charged with folly. How much less on them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without regarding it. Doth not their excellence in which, which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Now Eliphaz's response to Job's crying out in agony 
uh, carries on for two chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, and we're going through each uh, section individually. Uh, We may not do this for all of Job's friends or for all of the speeches, uh, but this one is instructive. This one is the one that is most sympathetic to Job, and yet there is a great deal of of prejudice, of, of biting, and, and really harsh attack upon him as one prejudged to be in need of repentance. To fortify his case, Eliphaz takes, before he goes into chapter 5, before he goes into his other applications, a time to reinforce the authority of what he says by a vision that he has received from, he supposes, the Lord. And that may be. He's uncertain, and therefore, unfortunately, there is uncertainty for us as well. Uh, The actual revelation, uh, sometimes depending, more modern versions take it to be 17 through 21. Uh, Historically, and probably more accurately, uh, the revelation is in verse 17, and the interpretation is what follows in verses 18 uh, through 21. The word from the Lord, perhaps, that Eliphaz gives to Job to enforce. Uh, remember in chapter 5, verse 8, it, it is a call to Job's repentance and a call for Job to be thankful for his chastisement so that he might be redeemed. Uh, chapter 5, verse 17 and following. So first he, he needs to show that, uh, that this is reinforced by Revelation. Now there's no reason to suppose that Eliphaz is making this up. Uh, Job's friends, while they will be at fault, are nevertheless, uh, the three friends at least, uh, in chapter 42 at the end, uh, when the Lord vindicates Job and actually accuses his friends, he never the way makes for uh, the reconciliation of his friends by the sacrifices of Job. Uh, We ought to remember that because uh, they did have, as we saw, good intentions They had good intentions that were marred by uh, various and sundry reasons, uh, prejudice against Job being one of them, uh, ignorance of of the divine way, another. Uh, And so they were made use of by Satan to further Job's misery to get him to curse God. But they themselves were not outside of God's grace and mercy, and the Lord provided for them. It's always to remember that. So when... We see here Eliphaz bring up this revelation. Uh, One of the things we want to immediately uh, move out of the the realm of possibility is is that Eliphaz is lying. Uh, That Eliphaz is attempting to to reinforce his own thoughts uh, by by this false revelation, the spirit that came and caused him to shut up. Uh, the Eliphaz interpreted from Eliphaz's point of view uh, has a, a very significant lesson to teach. So if we take verse 17 to be the revelation, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall man be more pure than his maker? Uh, Eliphaz is pressing upon Job the fact that it's foolish to charge God with injustice. And, and this is not outside of the, the realm of truth here. Uh, in fact, one of the things that God will answer Job about 
is the fact that Job cannot charge God with anything. He doesn't know the reason why God does so many odd and bizarre things. We will have the Lord in the latter chapters, chapter 38 and follow, bring forth various and sundry curiosities of nature, such as the the strange behavior of the ostrich sticking its head in the ground. Uh, What foolish behavior in many ways. Uh, This is something that God created. It's something that ostriches do. We can't account for it. And do we think we can account for all of God's ways? There is a good lesson there. Um, and, And we see how the lesson is used by Eliphaz is to remove any standing before God. Sometimes it's translated, shall man be just before God, or can man be pure in God's sight? Uh, Either way, it still is used the same. Uh, Eliphaz jumps and goes forward, uh, and in verses 18 and 19, Behold, he puts no trust in his servants. He charges his angels with folly. If, if even the angels are not perfect in his ways, if God can uh, bring them into judgment, and remember, he does bring angels into judgment, and even those that serve him, uh, there is, they are not gods themselves. How much less, 19, to them who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust, which are crushed before the moth. Uh, they're so weak that, that even they can perish in such little ways. Uh, I mean, mankind has achieved great things, but uh, that often we see uh, that those, uh, those great things are very fragile. Uh, wealth is easily got, is easily lost. Uh, health is easily obtained, and well, sometimes, and then easily lost. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish uh, for ever without regarding it doth not their excellence or their tent pole which is in them go away they can't even make a stand in the world they die even without wisdom and therefore if they are vanity and a passing breath and a wind how can they stand before him who is there at the beginning who is uh, by whom all things are upheld they're, they're, you're complaining Job before the Lord and this is uh, irrational behavior before the God of majesty. And it is unlawful and it applies that you're in a position to judge him. This is the, the use that Eliphaz is making of this revelation that he has uh, received. But the question is, is it a proper interpretation of what he has heard? Is it proper to base the Lord's glory merely upon his sovereignty? Now, there are other times when we get that in Scripture. When Paul is dealing with God's ways with sinners, with the mighty in the land, with Pharaoh, or even with the presumptuous Israel that thought because of their heritage and because of their gifts that they were God's chosen in such a way that they could do whatever they want. They could even kill the Son of God and be guiltless. In Romans chapter 9, can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me thus? When God is bringing judgment on mankind, there is certainly a sense in which we have no standing when we are exposed for our sins before Him. And the Lord is sovereign, and He can do what He wishes. But it's interesting to know that that is not the way that the Lord reveals His glory in Scripture. 
This, by the way, is the, the underlying argument of Islam. The way that they present Allah, the reason why Allah is never described as one who loves, besides the fact that love is, is if, if there's only one God without the, the trinity of persons within, then a God who loves has to have his creation and therefore weakens him. Uh, but the other idea is what you get out of the arbitrary law of Islam is this hesitancy to say that the law of God is such because it is good. Uh, they, they fall into, there's an old Greek philosophical argument, is God, did God command something because it was good, or is it good because God commanded it? Uh, Christian theology says God commands his own nature. God is good. There's no good higher that God has. God is the standard of good, but that doesn't mean that it's arbitrary. Uh, we don't have a uh, might makes right sort of view of morality. Uh, it is impossible for us to conceive God is sinning. In fact, part of the greatness of God, James says, is that God cannot sin. That's not a limitation, because sin is actually a denial of what is good, a denial of perfection and liberty. It's a constraint. The Lord constantly puts forth His glory in His holiness. That He is who He is, but that is a wonderful, glorious thing. And to, make the, to separate God's power and sovereignty from His goodness is actually to put asunder what God has put together. In fact, the language of Scripture tells us that it is because of holiness that God has this power. That if God were able to do wickedness, it would be a sign of his weakness. That liberty isn't sin. That liberty isn't rebellion against God. That Satan, because he throws off the yoke of God, has imprisoned himself. And so we never want to put... We never want to answer the questions about why God is doing something simply to a reference to his sovereignty. It's not to say that in and of itself it's wrong. Remember, with Paul, Paul does make a, a raw determination to the sovereignty of God, but he's speaking in the context of sinners anyway. Why the potter can't say to the 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 make uh, the pot can't say to the potter why did you make me this way? But th this is also the man that recognizes that God does all things good. This is not the case with Eliphaz. The Lord's glory is not merely in His sovereignty, uh, and and we ought to resist the notion that that. Arbitrary cruelty, or a presentation of God's arbitrary cruelty, is a faithful revelation. Uh, God does bring the wicked to destruction. God does ruin the one that is proud. God does work in ways that astound, confound, and confuse us. God works in terrible and awful ways. And one of the problems with uh, modern translations is that they tone that down. But God is not arbitrarily cruel. 
And God is not uh, subject to whimsy. One of, again, going to James, one of the great glories of God is that he does not change. The word arbitrary doesn't really apply to him. Uh, he, this is why in the creation of the world we get the language, let us make man in our own image. Not because there's more than one God, but because God would reveal himself as acting wisely and with consideration and with planning. That the creation is not a, a happenstance, a, a moment of, of fortuitous order out of chaos. But it is by his will everlasting. And therefore, to bring in God's sovereignty as a way just to cut off uh, our, our agony before God, our not understanding why he's doing something, actually serves to corrupt the glory of God and not to magnify it. So, there are problems with Eliphaz's word. Uh, taking it to be a genuine revelation from the Lord. Uh, it could, Job could hear this to his advantage. He was giving himself to passion. As we noted uh, two weeks ago, he, he begins, you know, cursing the day of his birth. And then, you know, that's a little strong. And so Job uh, refines it a little more. He, he wonders why he couldn't have died in childbirth. But that is even itself ungrateful. He wonders why in the midst of his misery he couldn't die now. Uh, Job is self-policing, if he were, the way he articulates his misery. Uh, Eliphaz could come by and say, look, you have taught others, Job. And yes, your struggles are terrible. You have lost your children. But we don't know the ways of the Lord just yet. And we are vanity before Him. We can't make ourselves more just than the Lord. Let's be patient and call unto Him. And Eliphaz could have been a man there to, to help refine Job's prayer, to mourn with him in true mourning, and then be there to comfort him when the proper word came. But because of his prejudice, he has twisted this revelation of the vanity of man uh, to become another accusation to move Job to deny that integrity that he knew of himself, and therefore Eliphaz is getting Job or is, is tempting Job to take Satan's side in his own ruin. But there's another problem with this revelation that I've already hinted at and foreshadowed that it's not clearly from the Lord. In verses 12 through 16. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a little thereof, and thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men. Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Up to this point, this is exactly what we would expect in those days and age of a revelation from God. And God did in times past, by sundry ways and diverse manners, make himself known unto mankind, including visions, including the night season, we get testimony of that in the book of Psalms as well. David heard from the Lord in the night season. He did with fear and trembling. 
Uh, this was terrible. This is one of the reasons why when angels appear unto mankind, their first words out of their mouth are, Do not fear, because they are afraid. But he goes on. So it stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. The image was before my eyes. There was uh, silence, and I heard a voice saying, uh, this is the language of uncertainty here. Uh, he couldn't tell what this was, who this was. It was just a, uh, a revelation from somewhere. When we see the terror of the Lord in Scripture, it is one of those things that the Lord uses to authenticate His message. Wherever we get the terror of God and the horror of God, we also get the certainty that it is from God. When the witch of Endor conjured up Samuel at the behest of Saul, she was a necromancer. She is one that communicated with the dead by revelation. But when Samuel actually appeared, not according to her tricks or even according to her demonic uh, witchcraft activity, when he appeared in genuine prophetic uh, guise to speak unto Saul the word of God, she fell back in terror. Because what she attempted to conjure was not conjured. God brought a word to Saul in the midst of it. When Moses was at the feet of Mount Horeb and God appeared, the angel of the Lord in the burning bush and told him to remove his sandals, there was never any uh, hesitation. He knew immediately that he was summoned by Jehovah, his God, That, that the terror of God came to show and signify and, and to confirm His authority. We get this even in New Testament times. On the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Peter, James, and John were terrified. That's the language. When they see Jesus transfigured before their eyes, when they see Elijah and Moses standing there, uh, Peter makes his, he wants to build three tabernacles, but he's speaking foolishly. But he's being prepared to hear the word of the Lord. This is my son. Hear ye him. So it's not even clear that the, that the spirit that comes without form or without substance unto Eliphaz is a spirit doing good from the Lord. Now certainly he's coming under the Lord's permission just like everything Satan does here. But even true revelation. If we do take it to be the revelation of God unto Eliphaz, even true revelation is twisted by Satan. We turn to Matthew chapter 4 and the temptations of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil taketh him up unto the holy city, and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. And Satan doesn't quote Apocrypha. Satan doesn't quote the wisdom of the sages or some pagan prophet. He quotes the psalmist. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. 
Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Satan is quoting scripture. Of course, he's getting him to do something uh, that is not God's will that Jesus do. And Jesus responds, quoting scripture. It is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In this conflict of Job with his own agony and suffering, understand that the friends here are, are being vessels to, to, in the hands of Satan to press upon him his agony. It's a way of Satan to accuse Job of a lack of integrity, that he only is a follower of God in the good times, that ultimately he has to curse God. And will curse God. This is what Satan is driving his friends to get him to do. The friends are trying to get him to repent. But as any of us know, when we are falsely accused, uh, it only makes us exasperated. And Satan is seeking to exasperate uh, Job. Now for us, though, in this section, how do we make use of it? First and foremost, this primarily teaches us what we ought to know. And first and foremost, we ought to know the wiles of Satan. That he's crafty. That he's devious. And that he does not play by the rules. He does not play by uh, what is good and wrong. And he does not just use the weapons that are his, lies and deceit. He will make use even of the weapons of his enemy, the truth. But the truth falsely applied. And therefore, as a Christian, you are required to exercise discernment. Faith is not the same as credulity. Uh, when Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, believe all things, that's what love does, he doesn't mean that we're credulous. Uh, he's talking about that we put our brethren in the best possible light. But John is our guide here in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 8. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. The spirit here is revelation. The revelation may come from many different places. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit brings true revelation. But they were living in a time when the scriptures weren't yet complete, and there are words from the Lord that were authoritative. And yet there was the danger of falsehood. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And this was a particular issue in John's churches. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world, even that back then. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us, and hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is an issue because wolves do come in sheep's clothing. Or as uh, Paul will tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 uh, through uh, 15. 
that there are false prophets and they come as angels of light. Second uh, Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers are also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. But there are deceivers out in the world. And there are deceivers that grow up and try to work their way into the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a field that is sown with wheat, and his enemy comes in and sows tares. And the Lord says, don't separate them until the harvest time. We ought to understand, and our Savior told us, to be on guard against deception. And this means not only that we have to test the spirits, but we also have to test when we have revelation and the true word of the Lord, that we also have to beware of the interpretation of the true word of the Lord. That it too will be one of those things that is twisted. We see Eliphaz twisting what in and of itself is innocuous and and true, whether it came from God or whether it's mediated through the devil. We see in Jesus' own temptations the word of God used against him. The world today, in general, it denies that truth is even such a thing. That there's no objective truth. That everything is a subject of what makes you feel good. What is your own truth is what they call it. When they say it is your own truth, they just mean your own delusion for living in this world that doesn't make sense. And they even reject the possibility of a right interpretation. They do this because, well, if you really want to get down to it, the world today is much like a spoiled child that can't be told no. That every limitation is considered an affront to one's humanity. As if we were all divine gods in the world. We've all eaten the fruit that Satan... We've all bought the lie that Satan gave Eve. When you eat this, you shall be as gods. We're not as gods. One of the great truths that we ought to listen to, and what Eliphaz could teach us correctly, is that we have limitations. That we are vain. The world doesn't want to hear it. This means that the world will often come under the instigation of Satan with a a snippet of the scriptures taken out of context or even put in context but applied out of way Uh, they will use uh, that which is given for the church to justify their work in the world Uh, they will uh, you hear it now about uh, pro-life issues or this or that issues um, that well you don't care about the poor I'm sorry, but if you want the poor to remain the poor and in misery and subjection and enslaved to you, you don't care about the poor either. The world today will not only denies truth, it hides it. And we ought to understand the revelation of God isn't just limited to Scripture. This is what we call the special revelation of God. This is the revelation of His reconciliation. But God, as He reveals in the Scripture, speaks through the created world. There is natural revelation. The creation speaks to us of the moral order of the universe. And the world today speaks against it just as much as it speaks against Scripture. And we are, 
we are made to feel like we're insane by a denial of what we see before our eyes of the evil called good and good evil. Of what we see as true, being told it's not true. This is the satanic nature of the world around us. And we need to remember that no matter how good our society is, no matter how much ensconced in the Bible Belt or wherever we may be, we're still part and in the world. And so you must be familiar with the word. You must be familiar with it because it will be used against you. Christ answered the word of God with the word of God. So that he might show you and I how to also resist temptation. But there's also another way where we um, are given to discern the, the wiles of the devil, as it were. If you turn to John chapter 6, excuse me, John chapter 7. This is an issue that has come up in Jesus' time as well. John uh, 7, verses 16 through 18. Jesus answered them, My doctrine is not mine, but is his that sent me. It's part of the, the, the faithfulness of Christ in the flesh, that he was always about his Father's business. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory, but, excuse me, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. What he's telling the group there, they had scribes and Pharisees that were wondering, uh, are, are trying to entrap him, by what basis can we receive your word? Yeah, you might be speaking the scriptures, how do we know that you're not twisting it? And he says, the way you know is through the righteousness and obedience to the Lord. If you're hearing me with a devotion to do the will of God, God will show and authenticate in your heart that this is the right thing. So many, this is Satan's great error. He obviously, to those that are faithfully serving Christ, he, he, his lie is, is paper thin. Uh, we know when the world comes to us and says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. That they have no desire to be obedient unto the Lord. That they're just wanting us to not expose their sin. They're just wanting a free ticket to do what they wish. And that's not at all the situation or the context that Jesus revealed that to them. And, and many such things can we, can we take. That to, to know the will of God, first you must be familiar with it, but you also need to be familiar with it by faithfulness to it. If you are faithfulness to the word of God, then a false interpretation will not lead you astray. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, on the authority of Scripture, they give all sorts of reasons why we can revere Scripture. But its authority rests on one thing alone. The Holy Spirit speaking to his people. And the way we interpret it is on ultimately we, we listen to the other ways that it's been interpreted. We listen to and understand the language. But ultimately it is the Holy Spirit that interprets the word. It's why we, we know scriptures from the Holy Spirit. Therefore we compare scripture with scripture. 
not scripture with Greek philosophy. Although that might be helpful here and there, but it's not the authoritative interpretation. A devotion to Christ will reveal Christ's words to you. This is about the Apocrypha. Uh, anybody who's curious why we don't receive it and accept it, I can go into the historical reasons why even the medieval church didn't receive the Apocrypha as equal standing with the Word of God. However, the most convincing argument is to pick it up yourself and read it. And it doesn't strike anybody as on the same level. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak to it in the same way. You can take the greatest sermons of John Calvin or or uh, the church fathers or whatever, there's a clear distinction between the Word of God and even that which comes out of the Word of God to explain it. Because the Holy Spirit authenticates His own words. And yeah, we want a human way to measure that and judge that. But this is God. And ultimately we submit or we do not. And seeking to submit to God will reveal what belongs to God. And we have to have confidence in that. Now, we have to know the wiles of Satan and be prepared against his ways. But we also, from this passage, are, should be encouraged. Because we're not in Job or even Eliphaz's position. Job, if, if Job is written in the same time that Israel was in uh, Egypt, then there is no written word of God that has come down to us. They had to, to, to figure out the word of God or what God wished from the traditions of their fathers and, and maybe the revelations of the spirits and hope that that was the revelation of God and not of the devil. And they spoke without authority, with fear and trepidation. But you have a great privilege in that we, you and I, have the more certain word of Jesus Christ. In Christ we have the perfect revelation. In Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the writer to the Hebrews starts with this. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken us to by, by his Son, whom hath he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, not a form that we don't really know, but the express image of his person, the upholding of all things by the word of his power, when he had heaven by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath an inheritance or obtained a more excellent name than they. The revelation culminates in Jesus Christ. Uh, the written word is the authority of the revelation of Christ. Christ is the ultimate word, and the written word is an infallible uh, inerrant revelation of that. Uh, Peter, in Second Peter, uh, chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 16 and following, writes, For we had not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the uh, power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we ourselves were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For 
He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him on the holy mount. But note what Peter goes on to say. That's, we have it from the horses. Well, that's probably not exactly holy to say, the image. We have it from God's own mouth. But he also says this. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well, that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn. And the star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy came... Uh, prophecy of scriptures by any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old, t- old time by the will of man but by holy men of God they, were, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost it goes on in chapter 2 to flesh that out a little more in Christ though we have perfect revelation so the first thing is we, we look at Eliphaz we look at the world we have all these imperfect things that we don't know where to hang our hat and we are fallible people just think about how often it hard it is to follow the science as they say about COVID-19 or the coronavirus you have one doctor saying this you have another doctor saying this you have another doctor saying this and another saying that a scientist saying this and that and they contradict each other and we of course suspect that if we followed the money we'd figure out why all of them are saying what they're saying There's no certainty there. And you and I are not, um, most of us at any rate, are not trained well enough to to discern and, and take all this information we have. Imagine if we were in the same boat with God. So we have this perfect revelation in Jesus Christ, but not just that, because we have the perfect revelation and Satan can twist that to his own desire. We also have the perfect interpretation by the Holy Spirit. That great gift he gave to the church, which we read in John chapter 16, the Holy Comforter, the Helper, the Advocate. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, through the end of the chapter, he says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. That when he shall appear, ye may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. You know, John, John was pressing the authority in the proper gospel. Just as Paul says, if any other comes to you preaching a gospel uh, from an angel even that is not the one I delivered unto you, let him be accursed. John is saying basically the same thing, but they're trusting. John particularly is trusting to the Holy Spirit to make it plain into the church. He doesn't have to give these human standards by which we know. Uh, so many, when they cross the Tiber, as they say, evangelicals that are... are uh, Distraught about the chaos in the churches and looking to the Pope, an infallible interpreter, says, I'll go there because at least they know what they teach. Well, understand that that completely robs Christ of his gift to the church, the Holy Spirit. Pope isn't just the Antichrist, he's the anti-spirit. And robs the church of her God-given royal priesthood to receive the word directly from himself. You ought to have 
confidence in your ability to receive it and understand it. So when we hear that Satan is going around to deceive us, it shouldn't make us cower in hopelessness. It shouldn't make us paralyzed in what to do as it makes our government paralyzed in the face of all this information about coronavirus. It should make us confident to be all the more obedient unto the Lord and press forward in what He's given us. That the truth will out. The truth doesn't out because of its innate strength. The truth outs because of God and who He is and what He's doing. And so, while we ought to recognize that Satan can use even the Word of God to further his views, that if you are planted firmly in Christ, if you are seeking to glorify Christ, if you, are in, if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you by a genuine faith, then you will see through uh, the lies of the tempter. You will see through. You will do as Job did. He didn't wither under the assault of Eliphaz. He knew that he was in his integrity. And he knew also that God would answer this because it is part of God's glory to answer this in some form or fashion. And he persevered. And that's why we don't speak of the wisdom of Eliphaz, but we do speak of the patience of Job. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And when we have the vanity of man that seeks to shame our knowledge of you, when we have that which is called knowledge seeking to take us from our service to you, when we are bombarded with all sorts of deceptions and lies and deceits, we give you thanks for your gift of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would fulfill that which you have told us you will do, that he will come and judge all things, that he will expose what is true and what is just and what is right. We ask that you would humble us, that we would not give ear to that which tickles our fancy and confirms our biases, but that we would have humble, teachable hearts, that we would learn from you, that we would follow you, that we would be patient and stand firmly upon your grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.